0: Very good evening to you from Calvary Church here in Viaduct Road in Brighton. It's a beautiful sunny afternoon and I'm here in the church recording this service for you to enjoy. And I'm very glad that you could join us whenever you're listening to this and wherever you are in the world. And especially if you are not used to being part of a Christian meeting like this, you may have stumbled across us on the internet you're particularly welcome, and I hope that however you, your experience of church is, that you enjoy being with us and find something of benefit, something which is useful for you spiritually. And, of course, you can contact us using the contact details provided if you have any questions or feedback, or you can leave a comment on YouTube or whatever. We would love to help you understand more about what Christians believe. I know for some people this may be very different from what you 're used to, what you expect a church service to be like, but i 'm going to try and explain as clearly as possible what 's going on for the benefit of those who are new to it and i 'm going to try to explain the terms we 're using because I know sometimes the way Christians talk can seem like a foreign language to those who are not used to it. so let me try and guide you through this service and i 've forgot to mention my name 's ben i 'm one of the Workers at Calvary Church here, and it's my pleasure and privilege, as I said, to lead us this evening. And tonight we'll be doing what we usually do when we meet together we'll be reading the Bible, which we believe is God's word to us. This is an inspired book which God has given his people to teach us everything we need to know about who God is, how we can relate to God, and so forth. We'll also be singing in just a moment the praises of God. That's something that Christians do. We like to sing and declare how wonderful God is and talk about the things that he's done. And particularly his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we believe died on the cross to save us from our sins. And also we'll be coming in prayer to God tonight as well. Prayer is is our way of talking to God and coming before him. Because Christians are God's children. And we have a relationship with him, and we can come to him, and we can talk to him, and that's what we'll be doing tonight in this service. So Let's sing our first song, which is a modern hymn, In Christ Alone. It's one of my favourites. I've always loved this song since I first heard it many, many years ago now. It talks about the Christian hope in Christ alone, in the Lord Jesus, is where our hope is found. So let's sing. The words will be on the screen. In Christ alone. So now let's pray to God. Dear Lord, we've just sung words about our faith and our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, in this world, there are many people that have no hope at all. Or if they do have hope, they put their hope in the wrong things. But we, Lord, as your people... put put our hope, our only hope, in the Lord Jesus. We believe that he died on that cross to take the punishment that we deserve for breaking your law, for sinning against you. We also believe that he rose again from the dead and is living today and one day will come back. Because of him, we we don't need to have any fear of judgment. We don't need to have any sense of guilt for the sins we've committed because we know, Lord, that you have forgiven us. That's only possible for those that put their faith in the Lord Jesus. Father, we think about this time when this crisis still drags on and there's no real end in sight. And we know, Lord, that many people are living without hope in this world, without Christ. Father, we do thank you that in these days there, there appears to be more interest or some indications of more interest of people tuning into services and listening to Christian teaching. We pray, Father, that wouldn't be just a superficial thing, but rather, Lord, that lives will be changed and hearts touched as people hear your word. I pray for anybody listening to this tonight, Lord, who may not yet be a believer, but yet who is interested to find out more about what these, these strange Christians believe in. I pray, Father, that you would answer their questions. Pray, Father, that you would speak to them, and I pray, Lord, you would give them the gift of faith and the gift of hope. I pray, Father, you would forgive their sins and help them to put their trust in the Lord Jesus as well. They might become the people of God, the children of God. Father, we, we do pray for our leaders. Your, your word, the Bible, tells us we should do that. We pray for our government. We pray for our prime minister. We pray for all politicians and all leaders and nhs leaders and business leaders and all those lord who have to deal with the aftermath of this crisis lord of course many of those people do not call on you they don't have any regard for you at all but we do pray father that some of them would turn to you we pray lord that all of them would be given wisdom and the ability to do their job well for the benefit of the people that live in this land whoever they may be we pray father for those that have lost their jobs, those that have lost loved ones. We pray Lord that not only would you speak to them and draw them to yourself but Lord you would would remind this nation and other nations that everything that we build our hopes on is fragile and can be taken away. The only thing which is a solid foundation is the Lord Jesus. We thank you Father the world will not always be this way. That We know that there will be There will be a day of reckoning, there will be a judgment, and there will be a day when the Lord Jesus comes back to save his people. So Lord, please help us as we meet together now, as we open your word in a few minutes. Help us to understand what you may be saying to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read from one of the books of the Bible. This is... What's known as the Gospel of Matthew. This is one of the books, the four books in the Bible, which is specifically about the life of Jesus and tells us what he did and what he said. Written by a man called Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples. And we're reading from chapter 22. And today's reading will be taken from verse 23 to 33. Matthew 22. Verses 23 to 33, you can look it up on Bible Gateway or if you have a Bible, you can pause the the video now, pause the recording and go look it up if you wish. Or you can just listen because I'm about to read it. I should just say this this is taking place probably on the Wednesday before Jesus is crucified. So he's crucified on the Friday And this is just a couple of days before that. And Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's been talking to the Pharisees and teaching in the temple. Let's pick it up at verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, Jesus, with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, His brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? since all of them were married to her. Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, But of the living, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Let me pray again, because we need God's help to understand his word to us. Father, thank you for recording these words of Jesus, this debate, this dialogue that he had with the Sadducees, all those hundreds of years ago. We pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, not to switch off and think this has nothing to say to us. If it didn't have anything to say to us, it wouldn't be in your word. So we pray, Father, that you would help me now to, in some way, teach this and unpack this for the benefit of all that listen. We pray, Lord, you would put on our hearts exactly what you want us to hear as a result of hearing these words. In Jesus' name, amen. You know... What I want to talk about today, I want to talk about quite bluntly and openly with you. I hope that's okay. Um, I don't really want to mince my words, and I don't want to um, avoid talking about important issues. But I think one of the biggest problems that the church faces in this country, in the West, in these days, is that the church is seen by many people as irrelevant. In other words, it doesn't have any any bearing on real life, so-called real life, or the important issues that people face. For most people in Brighton, I would imagine, and probably in your town as well, if you don't come from Brighton, the vast majority of people do not think that the church or the Christian faith will have anything to offer them that will help them in their lives. It's irrelevant, it's weird, it's kind of fringe... Activity, it's socially uncool. It's, you know, a weird relic of a more superstitious age. Whatever, it, whatever it might be for people, it's not seen as something which is relevant, something which is important. It's not where people go. It's not their first port of call when they are facing the big issues of life. I'm talking generally. Obviously, there, there are exceptions to that. But, dear friends. The church, if the Bible is to be believed, if what the Bible says is true, then the church is a place of great importance. It's a place where some of life's biggest questions, in fact all of life's biggest questions can be answered, where answers can be found to the questions that men and women either ask or should be asking. And today I want to talk about one of those important questions, one of those important matters. Is there life after death? What happens to me when, as inevitably will happen, my body one day will die? What will happen to me? Will, will there be anything at all after death? Or will it be the end of me? I think that's a question that everybody would do well to grapple with to answer to seek answers to one of our brothers from the church this week was talking about a visit to a hospice and I think a hospice is a very good and necessary thing to have in a society where sadly cancer is a reality and people die of this terrible disease and the hospice movement seeks to help people live their last days in dignity and as much comfort as possible. And our friend was remarking that in the hospice, one of the things that people would, would do well to hear is some kind of reference to the afterlife. Some kind of teaching about what happens when people die. Especially in that context, in that environment where people are facing their last days. You know, what do people really need when they're facing eternity when they're facing death of course they need comfort of course they need reassurance and peace and to have their family around them but if it's true that there is life after death and that life can be attained is it not important that people hear about this that people are given a chance to to understand that there is there is this teaching in the bible This assurance for those who believe in Jesus that there will be life after death. So I hope you can can agree with me that these are important issues. If it's true, there's nothing more important. Anyway, Jesus, in today's teaching, he was having a discussion, a debate, with a group of men about this very issue, about The resurrection from the dead, the idea of the afterlife, immortality. As I said, this was the week leading up to his death. You can read the same story in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark. I quite like Luke's version of it, Luke 20. The wording is slightly different, but the meaning is the same. And I'll be dipping into Luke's version of it as well today as we look at this passage. So we have this group called the Sadducees. They were an odd bunch of men, I think it's fair to say. At the time of Jesus, you had these different groups, these different factions, these different sects within Judaism. The one we we read most about in the Bible, in the New Testament, is the Pharisees. But today we read about the Sadducees. The Sadducees, what do we know about them? Well, they were a minority group. They were... A minority amongst the Jews, but they were influential they were powerful. They had connections to the temple. the high priest was, was probably a Sadducee, and they were a kind of priestly, aristocratic class of Jewish thinkers who had particular religious doctrines and views we don 't read much about them in the New Testament because the Sadducees mostly spent their time in Jerusalem, in the temple. And, of course, Jesus' ministry was mostly out and about in Galilee and places like that rather than in Jerusalem. But now he's in the temple. He's in Jerusalem. What else do we know about the Sadducees? Well, they didn't believe in the spiritual world. They didn't believe in spirits or angels or demons. and They didn't believe in any kind of... Of afterlife they didn't believe in immortality they didn't believe it was possible for there to be life after death they believed that when your body died your spirit or your soul died along with your body that was the end of you so for them there was no future judgment no future reward no future punishment no resurrection no immortality no life after death nothing like this that's what they believed The majority of the Jews, in fact, the, the Orthodox Jewish position at the time of Jesus, was to believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees certainly believed it. And when you read the Gospels, the books about Jesus, you can see that the vast majority of people accepted this as a reality, that there would one day be a resurrection of the dead. What do they base this on? Well, there were were lots of scriptures, actually, in the Old Testament, which seem to hint at a future resurrection and immortality, the idea that the soul of a person lives on after their body has died. I'll just read a couple of examples. So one is, is the famous Psalm 16, verses 9 to 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, Sheol nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. That's actually quoted in the New Testament about Jesus as a kind of prophetic psalm, which talks about his resurrection. You could easily see how the Jews could take this and talk about the idea of them, of the dead person having a future hope, of God not letting his faithful people see decay. Or, There's another famous verse in Daniel chapter 12 which which seems to very clearly talk about future resurrection. Daniel 12 verse 2 says this, talking about the time of the end. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And there there are many other scriptures which I could point to in the Old Testament which also clearly suggest and hint at without explicitly stating the idea of a future resurrection and the immortality of the soul, particularly of the believing soul. Why didn't the Sadducees believe this? They, they were learned men, they were educated men, they were, as I said, the priestly class, the high priest certainly would have known the scriptures of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, the law and the prophets. But the Sadducees, as far as we understand, didn't believe that the the books of the Old Testament, as we call it, apart from the first five books, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, were canonical. In other words, those books that we read from, from, from the first five books onwards were not considered by them part of Scripture, not considered to be actually the Word of God, not authoritative in any way. So they rejected the oral tradition of the Pharisees and they rejected all the books apart from the first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, which were collectively known as the Book of Moses or the five books, the Pentateuch. I think I read somewhere that the the Sadducees regarded the rest of the prophets and the rest of the Old Testament as little more than a commentary, people's comments and ideas based on the law the first five books but in any case they didn't consider it to be um, serious those those prophecies those hints of the resurrection they wouldn't have taken as authoritative for them in their understanding the pharisees didn't believe that the first five books the book book of moses mentioned the the resurrection of the dead at all and that's why They didn't believe it. Now, Jesus very, very clearly throughout his ministry teaches the idea of a future resurrection. He says in John 6, verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And he says this, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, that's Jesus' voice, and come out. Those that have done good will rise to live, and those that have done evil will rise to be condemned. Condemned, That's in John chapter 5, verse 11. So Jesus, in many places, sorry, please ignore the siren outside. Jesus, in many places, taught about the resurrection. He taught the reality that the dead will rise one day. It was common knowledge at the time when Jesus was having this debate with the Sadducees that he'd spoken quite recently when he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. So you had this man who died. Jesus raised him miraculously to life. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. The Sadducees would have regarded the resurrection of the dead, the idea that a dead person could come back to life is impossible. But the Sadducees would have found it very difficult to deny the miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus. Loads of people from Jerusalem had gone out to be with Lazarus's family when they were weeping, crying, mourning for Lazarus. They'd witnessed this. The city was full of the news of this. That this man, Jesus, has raised a dead man, a man who's been dead for days. He's raised into life again. And he says these wonderful words about being the resurrection and the life. In John 12, verse 10, we even read that the chief priests, who would have been Sadducees, were so concerned about this, so concerned that people were believing in Jesus because of what they'd heard about Lazarus, what they'd witnessed, that they even wanted to kill Lazarus to try to put an end to this movement, these people following Jesus and putting their trust in him. So the Sadducees would have known very clearly that Jesus taught and believed in the resurrection of the dead. But they try to discredit Jesus. They try their best question on him. No doubt this was a question they'd used time and time again with the Pharisees. They'd been debating all day long about this, and they never got an answer which satisfied them. For the the Sadducees, this was their best question. It 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 was a kind of absurd, unanswerable question as they saw it, that nobody could give a good answer to, that in their opinion proved that the resurrection of the dead was absurd. It was ridiculous. It was impossible because of the the kind of conflicts it would create. So when the Sadducees asked Jesus this question, I don't think they're just asking him out of interest because they value his opinion. I think they're asking him to trip him up. They want to silence him. They want to discredit him. They want to make him look stupid. They want to put him on the spot. Let me say this, well, you, you, if you're a non-believer, if you're a sceptic, you might well be able to confuse Christians. You might well be able to flummox Christians and put them on the spot and make them look stupid. But if you try to do that with Jesus, it won't work. And Jesus has got an answer for every question, every sceptical question that you might have. Christians might not know the answer, the answers are there in the word of God we don't have a perfect knowledge of the Bible we're learning all the time but Jesus would have an answer for you that would silence you so it's not a good idea to try to try to outwit Jesus it's not going to work and these men found that out as well so the Sadducees they cite this really rather ridiculous far-fetched story about this woman who was married seven times to seven brothers The way it's presented is that it was a true story. It it had actually happened. I suppose it might have actually happened. I think it's probably a hypothetical story they'd made up to try to prove their point. So why did this happen? They're referring to the so-called Leveret Law, which is found in in the book of Deuteronomy, the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 to 6, if you want to look it up. And there was this practice in Israel which God had commanded that if a married man died without having a child, without having an heir, his brother would take over his widow, take on his widow, would marry his widow, and so a son and heir could be provided to make sure the property stayed within that family, and that his family name and inheritance would not perish. That's the idea of this, this thing, that this woman is married to all these brothers, it's part of the law of Moses. But here's the million-dollar question they asked Jesus. So we've got this woman. All her husbands have died. And my goodness, what a track record that woman had. I don't know, you know, what can you say about a woman who's had seven husbands and they've all died one after the other? At the resurrection, supposing there's a resurrection and this woman is raised... And these seven men are raised. Whose wife will she be? Can you imagine the brothers squabbling over this woman and saying, Oh, she's my wife. No, no, she's my wife. No, no, she's my wife. I was married to her first, like kids in the playground squabbling over her. Whose wife would she be at the resurrection? Now, lesser men than Jesus would have been silenced by this question, wouldn't have known how to answer. But Jesus, of course, turns it straight back to them. Look at verse 29. He says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus, he answers their question in a masterful way, in an extremely wise way. And this is what he says. First of all, he deals with the marriage question. And I'm going to read Luke's account of this because Luke adds some extra words which Jesus doesn't say in Matthew's account of it. We have to put them together to get a kind of composite picture of what Jesus said. So Luke says in Luke 20 verse 34, Jesus answered, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. This is basically Matthew 20, 22, verse 30, but there's a few more words added to it. What was the mistake of the Pharisees? Sorry, the Sadducees. The mistake of the Sadducees was that they assumed that if there were if you were to imagine the resurrection from the dead, that somehow it would be a continuation or a resumption of life as it is in this world. You know, the Pharisees, they, they did believe in the resurrection and they debated endlessly about the details of the resurrection. One of the famous arguments they had was about what, what, you, what you would be wearing, what the dead would be wearing when they were raised to life on the final day. And the Pharisees spent hours debating this. Would you be wearing clothes? Should you wear your own clothes? Will you be given new clothes? All this kind of stuff. Every last detail of the resurrection. The Pharisees believed it would be just like this life. You would still be wearing clothes. You would still have bodies in the same way. And the Sadducees were the same. Except they didn't believe in the resurrection. They just assumed that if you believed that, that's what you would imagine it to be like resumption of life as it is as we know it here in this world if you look at many cultures in the world ancient cultures and perhaps even some cultures today there's this idea that when you, when you die you need to take something with you to help you in the afterlife it's a famous place in Suffolk, Sutton Hoo where they, they uncovered a Saxon burial ship, so there was this ship or boat buried full of treasure and you've got that famous helmet which is in the British Museum and all this kind of stuff so the king of East Anglia a, a chieftain died and his, his boat would be loaded full of treasure and he'd be buried with that boat in the ground presumably as some kind of provision for him for the life to come and of course the pharaohs in Egypt were no different, why is it whenever they break into a, a, a tomb in one of the pyramids and they find mummy there, you know, Pharaoh's mummy they always find a load of treasure it's because they assumed that in the, in the afterlife in the life to come, that you would need the kinds of things that would help you in this life, in order to, to succeed in that life and to survive in that life so it would be like me, knowing I'm about to die, packing a suitcase full of bits and pieces you know, a warm jumper in case it's cold or I don't know, a toothbrush. Practical things, as though somehow when you're dead, when you're raised to life again, it's just a continuation of life as we know, with the same kinds of bodies and the same kind of problems. The problem with this is you you end up with two different extremes. There are those people who, who picture heaven or an afterlife as being a kind of continuation of this life, a resumption of this life they find it thoroughly depressing and unsatisfying there's that song isn't there who wants to live forever i think it's freddie mercury queen who wants to live forever he's not saying well who wants to live forever because life here is pretty depressing and you know eternal life would just be the same as this i think that's what he's saying anyway so who wants that who wants to live forever I, i'm better off just dying on the other hand you get people that imagine he- heaven or eter- paradise to be exactly like this life in terms of sensual pleasure. So there are people who believe that heaven will be full of virgins, you know, beautiful girls. You can have all the pleasure you want and do all the things you want. A bit like a pleasure island where you, it's basically just like you know, all the things you, you've not had in this life, you can have in that life. And just enjoy it to the full. Live life to the max. But the, the point Jesus is making is that The life to come, the resurrection and the age that follows the resurrection will not be just, you know, picking up where we left off in this life. We will not have the same kind of bodies. Life will be different. You know, there are are lots of people in Brighton who, who believe in this kind of annihilationism they believe that when you when you die that's the end of you you just disappear your soul dies with your body they don't, they don't even believe you have a soul but that's the end of you but there will be an afterlife there will be a resurrection but it will not be just the same as this That was the problem with the Sadducees. They just pictured this this foolish argument because they believed that anybody who's foolish enough to believe in the resurrection must believe it's just the same as this life. You have marriage, you have sex, you have families, you have human bodies, but it's not going to be like that, according to Jesus. Not in the same way. How easy it is to dismiss the promises of God, to dismiss the promises of the Bible, because you can't get your head around them. Because you can't conceive of how it could be possible one of the the leaders of the jews he was a very learned teacher nicodemus and jesus tried to explain to him about the idea of spiritual rebirth and he said how can these things be and jesus said you you're the teacher of israel you don't understand these things so even very learned very clever people Even people that know know the scriptures to some extent still can't get their heads around certain things because they can't understand how these things can be. Because of that, they doubt these things. Dear friends, human wisdom can be a stumbling block. Human wisdom can be a door slammed in the face of Christ. What do I mean by that? People let their own wisdom or their lack of wisdom, their lack of understanding, blind them to cause them to not believe in the promises of scripture. Because they simply can't understand, they can't get their heads around how these things can work. A classic example of this is the Trinity. There's not a single person in this church, there's not a single Christian who fully can explain how the Trinity works, the idea that God is one God, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, a triune God. There's not a single person that can understand that and explain that fully. But the Bible teaches it. So you have a choice. You can either say, well, I don't believe that because I can't understand it. It's too ludicrous. It's too far-fetched to believe. Or you can just accept it and say, well, there are certain things I'll never be able to understand. But I, I do believe the word of God. Another classic example is creation. People say, well, how can I possibly believe that God created the world in six days? No, no thinking person can really accept that these days in the face of scientific evidence, so-called. And people dismiss the word of God because their little brains cannot understand or comprehend how that could be. Or perhaps the idea of heaven or miracles, whatever it might be, things which are supernatural. People say, I can't believe that. I can't believe that because it doesn't seem to make any sense because I can't understand it. And yet the Bible states these things as true. Wouldn't it be a shame if people were to dismiss the word of God because they simply found it impossible to fully comprehend how these things could be? I think that was the problem of the, of the Sadducees. Their, their idea of the power of God was so limited. They didn't understand that God could, could easily create or raise people up into a new kind of existence. A spiritual existence. Dear friends, There, according to Jesus, according to these words, there are some things which are part of this life, part of this world, part of this age, this period of human history which we live in, which will not be part of the age to come. The resurrection. One of those things is marriage. Why on earth, why did... The Sadducees assume that if you believe in the resurrection, you would believe that people had bodies and got married in the same way or would still remain married. Why did they make that assumption? Well, Jesus says, doesn't he, in these verses, verse 30, at the the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. In Matthew's account of this, the way it's, it's phrased seems to suggest that The way people are like angels is that they are not married. They don't have sexual relations, because that's obviously in the Bible a very big part of marriage. In Luke's version of this, Jesus says they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. So the people of the resurrection will be like the angels in in the fact that they they no longer have bodies which decay and grow old and die. There'll be no need for any procreation. There won't be any need for reproduction, making babies. Because there'll be a fixed number of people in the kingdom, in the resurrection kingdom. And those people will not have physical bodies in the same way. They will have resurrection bodies. I urge you to read... 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about the resurrection body. When a human body goes into the ground, when it's buried or cremated, it turns to dust. It's a perishable body. It's a body that decays. That's what happened to the pharaohs. That's what happened to the king at Sutton Who? That's what happened to all of us, unless Christ comes back before that. There's a promise in Scripture, in the Bible, that on the last day, when the final trumpet sounds, when Christ returns, the dead will rise from the graves, from their graves. And they will have new bodies, resurrected bodies, imperishable bodies, bodies that cannot decay, that cannot get old, that cannot get wrinkled, and cannot die. In that sense, they're like the angels, like the angels, and they're no longer. Marriage is, is an institution for this life. As good as it is, it only lasts until one of the partners dies. Till death us do part. It doesn't continue beyond this life. Jesus talks here in these verses about the children of God, children of the resurrection. It will not be the same as life in this life. The angels stand in the presence of God they worship God they glory in his name they serve God faithfully day and night dear friends there, there, there are mysteries in this that we cannot fully understand we're not told as much as we would like to know perhaps we simply can't understand it but we need to know that there will be a difference and it will be a good difference we'll move into a, a different plane of relationship with God when we're in heaven we won't have hunger and sadness and suffering and all these things these belong to the age we're in now the children of this world so Jesus answers the question that woman will not be married to any of those men in the resurrection because they'll be like the angels a completely different relationship I want to mention something else as well. Coming back to that verse in Luke, when Luke talks about this. i read it for you in Luke chapter 20. Let's see what Jesus says. Luke 20 verse 35. Those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Matthew leaves that bit out about being worthy. Jesus makes it clear that not everybody will be considered worthy of entering the age to come and being raised to eternal life at the resurrection. Some people will and some people won't. We might ask the question, will we be considered worthy to take part in that? that new life. The Bible makes it clear that the only people who will be considered worthy to enter the kingdom of God, to be raised to new life, eternal life, with God, with those new bodies, are people who've put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because none of us is worthy. All of us, as I said, have broken God's law. All of us have sinned against him. All of us are unworthy. And all of us Any of us can be made worthy, not by being good, not by being moral, not by going to church, but by putting their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross, suffered in their place as an atoning sacrifice for their sins. An atoning sacrifice is a sacrifice that takes away the anger of God. And those that believe in in Christ, to put their trust in him, are made worthy to enter the kingdom. Will you be considered worthy on that day? Because there will be a general resurrection. The Bible says that all people will be raised. Some to eternal life in the kingdom and some to eternal lostness and eternal separation from God. It's very important we know which side of the fence we sit on. And the Bible makes it clear we can and should be sure of that. And if you're putting your trust in the Lord Jesus as your saviour, then you can rejoice in the fact that God has made you, by grace, worthy to take part in that age to come. So Jesus deals with their silly question about this woman who was married to all seven men. That's completely irrelevant. And then he deals with a bigger issue for the Sadducees, which was their their attitude to the resurrection in general, their, their disbelief, their... Annihilationism, if you want to put it that way. Now, remember I said that the Sadducees, they didn't believe in all the books of our Old Testament except the first five books, the Pentateuch, the book of Moses. Well, Jesus, very wisely, he doesn't go to the the verse in Psalms or the verse in, in Isaiah or the verse in Daniel to try to prove the resurrection. He goes straight back to their scriptures, the ones they considered to be canonical, authoritative. I've got a Muslim acquaintance, when I, when I discuss matters of faith with him, he mocks and scoffs at the Apostle Paul, and he doesn't believe that the Apostles are credible and should be listened to. He only believes in the words of Jesus, so he says. So when I debate with him, I don't bother quoting Paul, although I, I 100% believe that Paul is just as inspired in his writings as, as the Lord Jesus was in what he said. But I take him to the words of the Lord Jesus To be honest, he doesn't listen to those much either. But that's where I would go to. And Jesus does the same thing. He takes the the Sadducees right back to their scriptures. In Luke 20, verse 37, in this um, account of this story, Jesus says this. In the account of the bush, even Moses said that the dead rise. This is the equivalent of verse 32, Matthew 22. So the account of the bush is the story of Moses, the time when he saw the burning bush in the desert and when God spoke to him from the bush and commissioned him to go and set his people free. You can read about it in Exodus, the third chapter, verses 1 to 6. And how did God address himself to Moses? He said this, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus quotes it here in verse 32. So even in those scriptures that the the Sadducees said, do not speak of the resurrection, Jesus proves to them the resurrection. It's not explicitly taught, but it is implicit. And with care and attention to the word of God, you can see that the resurrection is clearly taught in this verse. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the patriarchs of the Jewish people. They were the kind of the founder members of the Jewish nation, the ones with whom God had made covenants, he'd made agreements and promises with them. Now, when it says here, God said, I am the God of Abraham, he's, talking, he's almost saying, I am the God to whom Abraham belongs. The patriarchs had all been dead for a long time, even the most recent one to die before Moses. Jacob died, I think, 200 years before Moses came on the sea. But God speaks as though they were still alive. He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. He doesn't say, I was their God. He says, I am their God in the present tense, implying a continuing situation rather than something that happened in the past. So God speaks as though these men were still alive. They were still in existence. As long as I'm alive, my wife can say, I am Ben's wife. If I were to die today, my wife could no longer really strictly say, I am Ben's wife. She could say, I was Ben's wife, but that marriage has been terminated by death. And therefore, I was her husband, I'm no longer her husband. And it's exactly the same about God. It would be absurd for God to say that he was the God of Abraham. As though Abraham was still alive. Were Abraham not still alive in some sense. If you look at Genesis 17 verse 7, we can look back at the covenant that God made with Abraham. He says this, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you. For the generations to come, to be your God, and the God of your descendants after you. So, it's very interesting that even when God makes this covenant, he he promises to make an everlasting covenant, not only with Abraham's descendants, but with Abraham himself. How is that possible, if Abraham were to die, and that were to end that covenant? You couldn't really call it Everlasting, could you? How could God still be Abraham's God when his dead body was lying in a cave? And there's a sense that all the promises that God made to Abraham in that covenant were not fully fulfilled in the life of Abraham. Abraham was looking forward to a better city, whose foundation was built by God. Abraham was still looking to a fulfillment beyond his present life. There can only be two conclusions either god is a god of corpses he's a god of the dead or in some sense these men these patriarchs abraham jacob and isaac were still in existence in some sense and jesus says in verse 32 of matthew 22 he's not the god of the dead but the living Dear friends, by good and necessary consequence, we can deduce from this. And Jesus makes it plain that these verses do indicate that Abraham's death, Isaac's death, Jacob's death was not the end of them. How could God still call himself their God, claim to be their God when they were dead? The fact fact was they were still in a covenantal relationship with God, even though their bodies had died. God was still their God. You know, friends, as I said, death can break the marriage relationship, but it cannot break a Christian, a believing person's relationship with God. Isn't it comforting to know that when Christians, when believing people, when they finally die, their bodies stop working, their spirits go to be with the Lord in some sense. And that one day they will be resurrected along with us, to the newness of life to come in the kingdom, which will be so different from this life. In the last week, two famous Christian teachers have died, Ravi Zacharias, I think it was last week or this week, and another man that I used to respect, I didn't always agree with everything he said, but he was a very good Bible teacher, David Pawson. He only died two days ago yesterday. And we can still say that God is the God of David Pawson, God is the God of Ravi Zacharias. God is the God of Billy Graham. God is still the God of Spurgeon because these men, although they're dead physically, yet they still live. They still exist. They're waiting for the resurrection. That's true for your loved ones that are believers. One day you'll see them again. One day they'll be raised to life. God is still their God. They're still in that relationship with him. Now, In Mark's version of this story, Jesus finishes with this this note of caution. Mark 12, verse 27, he says to the Sadducees, you are badly mistaken. They didn't know the scriptures properly, didn't know the word of God, didn't know the power of God. There's a warning here for all of us, and this is my, my main point today, really. It's possible, like the Sadducees, to have quite a good knowledge of the word of God, of the scripture, and yet have a sloppy, undisciplined, careless neglect of certain key points of scripture which can lead you into serious error. Jesus said you are badly mistaken. You are fatally mistaken in your understanding of scripture. Notice that Jesus doesn't commend the Sadducees for being right in so many areas of doctrine. It doesn't say, well, you know, you're 99% right, but you're just just wrong on this one area about the resurrection. You find with cults and weird kind of sects in Christianity that a lot of what they say may well be true, certainly true for Jehovah's Witnesses. You can can find yourself agreeing on a lot of stuff. I put Roman Catholics in the same category. But the errors that they make are not just minor secondary issues. They miss very, very important truths in Scripture, even though they know the Scriptures. Yet they, they somehow miss out on these things. And we need to be very, very careful that we don't fall into the same trap. Dear friends, there are too many Christians today, and I know this might sound like a hobby horse, but I'm concerned about this. There are too many Christians and churches who are sloppy about doctrine, their approach to the Word of God. Dear friends, truth matters and doctrine is very important. Doctrine doesn't save us. You won't get to heaven just because you you know the right doctrine. But it is important if you're going to avoid the kind of errors that the Sadducees were making. Churches need to be preaching the truth, proclaiming the truth of the word of God, not withholding anything and defending that truth and teaching their people how to defend the truth and know the truth and stand firm on the truth of God's word. These days, doctrinal accuracy, careful exegesis, right interpretation of scripture, contending for the gospel can be seen as esoteric, weird, not that important, divisive. But I don't think Jesus would have it that way. If the, if the Sadducees were alive today, I can imagine some Christians saying, well, you know, these guys, they, they may have a different opinion about the resurrection than we do, but they're, they're trying to serve God in the best way they can, and we can't be too judgmental. And, you know, we all basically believe the same thing anyway, and God will accept people with different opinions because he sees they mean well. Let's focus on the things that unite us rather than the things that divide us. But Jesus has no qualms about saying to those men, you are badly mistaken, you are wrong. And then he shows us a masterpiece of how to use the scripture carefully, not in this kind of sloppy way. And he uses the scripture to defend this doctrine of the resurrection. If you want to know how to handle scripture well, you want to be committed to doctrinal accuracy, look at Jesus and how he handles this he sees something in these verses from the book of Moses that they'd miss completely because he's meticulous and careful in his use of scripture and friends there, there are things in, the, in there are important doctrines in the scripture which are not explicit but they're still there you know perhaps in the books of book of Moses the, the doctrine of the, of the resurrection wasn't explicit but it was there if you were careful And you looked at the word carefully and understood it carefully in the light of scripture. Perhaps the same is true of the doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament. It's not always very explicit, but if you carefully handle the word of truth, it's there. By right and necessary consequence, you can't come to any other conclusion if you rightly handle the word of truth. Paul says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself as one approved. Who does not need to be ashamed, but correctly or rightly handles the word of truth. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15. And I pray that we in this church, and me, and all of us who open the word of God, and all of us who read the Bible for ourselves, will have a careful, accurate love of scripture, and a way of handling the scripture, which is biblical, which doesn't lead off into error or falsehood, and the love for the truth and a commitment to really understanding the truth as understood in the word and taught in the word of God. Because I think that's what Jesus is doing here. And it's, it's highlighting the, the, the foolishness of this casual, careless approach to scripture. which When you can miss out on such key doctrines because you're not careful. <clears throat> truth matters. We need to contend for it. In a gracious way, of course. But boldly. Matthew tells us that the crowds were astonished at the teaching of Jesus. They were, they were amazed that this man could give such answers. Hits an now right on the head. He deals with the marriage question. That's not relevant. He deals with the, the resurrection. Says, well, the resurrection is in your scriptures. Look. But the Sadducees were Silenced. Verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. Luke tells us in his account of this story that from then on no one dared ask him any more questions. Jesus shut them up, he made them look stupid, he silenced them. One of the most shocking things about this story, and this is something I haven't heard many other people make, a point people haven't made widely when they have taught on this but I think this is something we need to take notice of is that Jesus gave the the Sadducees a perfect answer he took them to the scripture, their scripture and he showed them clearly he proved to them the resurrection but the Sadducees don't go away as far as we know and they say well you know we were wrong we need to humble ourselves, this man was right all along, we were wrong We need to completely change our whole theology. There's no indication of them doing that at all, is there? Despite the fact that he proved them wrong using the word of God. Famous reformer Martin Luther once said this. He was talking to the Catholic hierarchy. He said this, Unless I am convinced by proofs of scripture or by plain and clear reasons and arguments I can and will not retract, for it is neither safe nor wise to do so. Do, do anything against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. So Luther's saying, if you can prove to me using scripture or rational argument, I will change my views, but unless you can do that, I will not change. But the Sadducees have been given such an answer by the Lord. In 2 Timothy, Paul gives this warning about men of corrupt minds who are always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. What a dangerous position to be in when you learn and you learn, you learn scripture, you know all this stuff, but you still cannot come to a knowledge of the truth, to saving faith. This was the Sadducees. they have been, been instructed by scripture, plain and clear, by reasoned Logical, rational argument from Jesus. They still weren't willing to change their minds. Can you imagine what the Pharisees would have had to lose if they had rejected, so I keep saying the Pharisees, the Sadducees, if they rejected, turned away from their theological position? They would have lost face, they would have lost their respect amongst the people, they would have perhaps lost their position in the temple. But they would have received salvation. The cost would have been enormous. But the cost of rejecting the truth, which when it was presented to them on a plate, was far greater, I think. There might be someone listening to this who, like the, like, like the Sadducees, has some kind of cast-iron, logical argument against the Christian faith. You say, "Well, if anybody asks me, this is my objection." Until I get a better answer, this is my reason for not believing in the Lord Jesus. My question for you is, if you did have a satisfactory answer, if someone were able to answer you and give you an answer to every question you have about evolution or about whatever it might be, would you believe in the Lord Jesus? Would you turn and humble yourself and put your trust in him if you, if you receive such an answer? The, the problem is, you might lose a great deal if you did that. You might lose your respect, you might lose the, you know, the affection of your family, you might lose all sorts of stuff. Could you bring yourself to, to believe, to confess that your whole belief system has been in error, that you've been mistaken? Well, I, I hope that you could, if you were convinced. But the, Pharisee, the, Saddu- the Sadducees couldn't do that. They could not bring themselves, even though they'd been proved wrong, in public, to turn away from their false doctrine, their error, and to humble themselves and believe in the resurrection, believe in the Lord Jesus, to ask him to make them worthy to enter that age. The Sadducees, very sadly, despite hearing this, they wanted Jesus dead at all costs. Two days later, they got their wish. Jesus was put to death. Dear friends, the Sadducees were humiliated and defeated. On that Sunday, the following Sunday, when Jesus, by the power of God, was gloriously raised from the dead, not as an exception, not as a one-off, but as a first fruits, as a forerunner of all that put their trust and faith in Him. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, you, believing person, Christian, will also be raised from the dead. That's the guarantee of your salvation guarantee of your glorification your resurrection they thought they could get rid of jesus they thought that death would be the end of him there would be no resurrection but how wrong they were and that is what happens when you refuse to believe when you try to silence jesus when you oppose him when you suppress the truth by your wickedness you will find yourself silenced humiliated and defeated when all said and done paul says the resurrection is of first importance it is the heart of the christian faith such a wonderful miracle the resurrection of the man christ jesus from the dead exalted to the right hand of god what a marvelous what a wonderful thing that is do you believe do you believe are you putting your trust in him Dear friends, this is what the church of Jesus Christ proclaims. This is what it stands on. This is our hope, dear friends. The resurrection, the sure and certain hope of the resurrection from the dead. Well, I hope that was helpful in some ways. Let's pray and then we'll finish. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that although he was definitely dead, he came out of that tomb raised to glorious life, and one day all who trust in him will be raised as well. Lord, we don't fully understand what that life will be like. We know it will be different from this life. Lord, we know it will be more wonderful than anything we can imagine. And therefore, Lord, we pray that you would, you would find us among those who are worthy to enter that life through faith in our Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, for anyone listening to this who might be in the position of the, of the Sadducees who's hardening their hearts, refusing to believe Pray, Father, that you would open their hearts to the gospel, that they might humble themselves, put their trust in the Lord Jesus, and live. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to sing a final hymn, which talks about the Christian hope, one with himself, I cannot die. Yes, my body will die, but it's not the end of me. I know where I'm going. So it's number 503 in the book or you can read the words from the screen before the throne of God above. The Lord bless you all.